0: Hello. Hello. How are you? Oh yeah. All right. Day five hundred
1: and twenty of my lockdown.
0: Today.
2: (laughs) I I don't know. So what's the what's the story like? (laughs) What what? So is it the government there has just a very harsh like hard approach to it? I don't quite. What's going on? So
1: yeah. So. Ukraine entered lockdown on the 10th of March in 2020, and mm-hmm. has been in adaptive lockdowns um, from then up until now, um, and they just extended it to the 1st of October. Um,
2: so that but, that's that's sort of like there's a kind of like set of restrictions that can fluctuate. Yeah, at mm-hmm. any given
1: moment. Um, yeah, but. Because I um, have had a stroke and suffered bronchitis from living in the pollution of Egypt, I'm Mm -hmm. a person at risk. So Mm -hmm. I am essentially locked down completely. And I haven't left – I've not left the apartment since the 10th of March 2020 Um, because while the numbers have dropped a lot recently throughout Ukraine, it was getting – like up to 20,000 new cases a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just haven't been able to leave and I won't be able to leave until I get vaccinated, which brings us to the fact that I am a non-essential foreign <laughs> mm-hmm. resident, yeah, yeah, yeah. a foreign, uh, foreign temporary resident, which means I'm not very high up on the list of mm-hmm. vaccines.
2: Is it so harsh there that you couldn't, like, abscond back into the EU or something like that where you might be able to...
1: I mean, yeah, a lot of the EU isn't letting people leave uh, yeah, or right. letting people in <laughs> as mm. well. Um, and it's kind of like the risk... So people will ask, like, why didn't you go back to Australia One. At one point, it cost $79,000 for two tickets.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And two, the risk of going through an airport or multiple Mm -hmm. airports or a border crossing, Mm -hmm. whatever, is so high that you'll get it, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when everyone was doing it. So it's like, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's an un... There's a no-win... No. no one can win. <laughs> a, I don't
2: know why. When I just said, when I spoke the words, I was, the, the, the the assumption I was making was like, somehow the EU is like more safe and developed. And I'm like, nah, they're like going off their tips. They're going crazy. Uh, it's not like you're going anywhere <laughs> yeah. better, is it really? No. Like, and,
1: and that was, um. you know, that's the assumption that a lot of people made. Oh, well, Ukraine's yeah, Ukraine immunization our rollout has been better than Australia.
2: Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say this highly bureaucratic, highly bureaucratic state, centralized state, which I can imagine Ukraine's sort, of, sort of proximity to Russia.
0: They yeah, it's trying to be. It's
2: trying to be Vietnam, China, kind of. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. It's
1: funny that you mentioned that because they're trying to be more demo- democratic. Yeah. To- separate themselves from Russia but, oh, but they
2: have all the uh, infrastructure left exactly in the Cold War that, that, that yeah that allows them to do that really easily yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Mm. hello everybody else <laughs> how are we going alright yep. yeah we're surviving. here <laughs> yeah surviving yeah that's good um Good to see you and hear you all and I really appreciate you coming because um, I know that you have assessments up on the horizon so it's always uh, good to come at this time. Um, So I hope that um, you are looking forward to the intra-trimester break and I just wanted to take this quick moment just to say that you know, to, again, to reiterate what I said in the lecture, I think traditionally it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, it's a chance for you to revise and that type of stuff. And I am sure, but I think also, you know, we've all kind of been through it a bit. And so I, I'd i encourage you to, like, prioritise recharging your batteries and taking care of yourself as much as it's important to revisit the material. But... um I think it's better to come back refreshed than to sort of uh, keep going as much as you can. So I thought I'd just say that. I think that's important. So um, I think it's probably fine if we maybe get into this um, reading. Um, And so uh, this is an interesting reading, I think, um, because I think it's, kind of rich but uh, uh, it has the potential to be I think you know this is sort of the last seminar of the week some some of them kind of felt like people looked a bit sort of perplexed at some of the material and, and whatnot so I, I just want to I want to be clear about how we might approach this from the outset and I just want to say that this reading uh, Ingold is here laying out a problem um, around uh, the kind of uh, how we can think about animals and so it's a problem that he's laying out and and providing us and something that I sort of wanted to kind of latch onto a little bit is on page two he sort of said well um, maybe we could treat this problem around animals in the way that Levi Strauss looked at mythology and that only kind of like hit me because because of the lecture I was pulling down my books on Levi Strauss this week and I was reading them. And Levi-Strauss, his approach to myth uh was to uh take lots of different accounts of of our particular myth, or a set of mythology particular to a group of people and bring all the different versions together in order to kind of see some of the common themes and to kind of get a glimpse of like some of the common you might see some of the structures and contours of uh, this particular of a particular people's cosmology and so I think because uh, Ingold makes a nod to that he's doing a, is let's bring together all the kind of different approaches and different people's uh, sort of uh, uh, contributions to this problem and let's sort of see where the kind of common Kind of strands of thought are and so with that in mind uh, I would just want to approach this paper with by maybe we're going to start looking at picking apart some of these different strands that make up this problem so I've just sort of sort of flagged that from the outset and so with that in mind I think uh, the kind of uh, question is how should we think about animals and as a way into this uh, on page three, in gold sort of notes, well, from the outset, it's this. It seems like uh, there's this kind of approach, uh, what he calls the idea of deficiency. So that when you think, when humans think about animals in the West, what we tend to do is say, well, we have these sort of traits that that make us sort of human, and that we are kind of pretty happy about and proud of, and animals don't have them and that's what sets us apart so we've got these special traits and animals lack them, are deficient in them and so he makes, he sort of says this on page three but then sort of quickly he sort of points out some of the flaws and problems with this type of thinking and I just want to maybe throw it out there to see uh, if any of us could maybe see how this is a kind of problematic way to think about it or where this might have some flaws uh, or if if they could see that in the reading by just thinking about it. Uh,
1: yeah, so the
2: uh, example
1: that is given in the paper is the fact that some people are born without the ability to speak and that's something that is often given as a great separator of animal and human. So does that mean that people who, who can't speak fall into the category of non-human? Um, and that's like quite a worrisome thing when you kind of put it to, well, what are the other classifications? And it's quite ableist in a sense, this classification of human and stuff. And, and that's a more modern look at it, um, I guess in a sense like that is that's kind of an ableist view of what makes a human the ability that we have another thing that's raised later in the paper is i can't remember by who but it's the fact that humans can move uh with intention and through their own power or animals uh, animals or inanimate sorry but animate objects can move under their their own power basically and that's another way of separating inanimate, inanimate, human and animal. So what does that say about humans who can't move under their, their own power if they are quadriplegic, paraplegic, so on? They're assisted by um, machines which are under the uh, which are not the same are, are inanimate objects. So does that make them inanimate? Because the same movement is mechanical in its process. The wheel keeps turning of a of a wheelchair, and it kind of it can go back and forth in that sense of um, these classifications are making the assumption that all humans fit into them, and and perhaps that's not true. So can it work the other way around? And that's kind of explored later on where they say, no, <laughs> it, it doesn't work the other way around. The animals can't become human.
2: Great. That was good. I think there's a lot there. And I think what you've imp- pointed out was important because that's the kind of Ingold, I think what's interesting about Ingold is that he inverts the problem. Can you uphold that on the human side of things? Amy, yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, Callum, you summed that all up really, really well. Like you did a really good job there. Um, I, I, I agree with you on all of that. Uh, the language thing, I found, to, it's, there's so many arguments against that. You know, we know that whales sing to each other. Just because we don't understand it, doesn't mean it's not language. We know that the Egyptians had hieroglyphs. We have now. We modern society hasn't been able to translate those hieroglyphs, but it doesn't then mean they don't count because we don't understand it. So, um, you know, whales, bubble net they must communicate to each other to do that. River dolphins who fish on the side of the bank and all go to one side have to communicate which way they're laying down before they do that. And there's really complicated things. And I've watched my dog with intention make her brother bark. And then she runs into the treat door because she knows if he if they bark, we call them in. If they come straight away, they get a treat. I've watched her egg him into barking at something, then run in and sit begging at the treat drawer. <laughs> like, she has intent. She works it out. She's a dog. So, yeah, those bits came up for me in that.
2: <laughs> I think that's a really great insight, and I think that kind of goes to the heart of what we're talking about in the lecture, because Ingold kind of says, well, if you want to think about communication more broadly – why do you want to just focus your attention on the kind of speech of things? Uh, why why place you there, Kim?
4: Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add to that that I I had a little chuckle on page eight when he was in gold was pointing out that you know there's this idea that for an animal to be seen as a human, it needs to be able to prove that it can think before it acts, and then he sort of said that when hardly any of us actually do that. So it's almost like we put this set of rules on ourselves and we can break those rules and they can be fluid and all that stuff, but for an animal or something that's non-human to come into our our group, it has to be all of the things that we never are. So I found that interesting.
2: That's really interesting. I I think um, we're kind of bowling through this quite quickly. Uh, some of the uh, ideas that are elucidated in the in the paper. Um, so, uh, I'll, there's, a, there's quite a couple of things to kind of expand on I think in there. So I might, um, I'll hand over to you, Carmen. We might sort of come back for a, an approach in a moment.
0: Um,
1: to kind of build on what you were saying, Amy, about you know non-verbal communication. There's that communication of symbols and stuff that is covered, I, honestly, I can't remember if it's in this uh, unit or another unit that I'm doing at the same time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm doing three and they all kind of intermingled. But um, the differentiation between symbolic communication and uh, non-symbolic communication, that's another divide that's, is, that is made. Um, but it's still communication. It just so happens that humans can communicate with symbols and, and stuff like that. Um, and I kind of find that interesting that, well, the ability to communicate makes us human. But we often are seen as communicating in ways that are not just language-based. One um, that's brought up is the ability, like sign language, is is not spoken, but it, it's a different form of communication. That can be taught to other primates, um, and that's like, well, does that make their ability to communicate with us? Does that bring them up in the status or not? Um, and it's well, no, they're still animals. And I think that comes to something that in the book, I'll see if I can find the page. And um, cultural in culturalization um, is really a way that one of the people in the book looks at it becoming human is then tantamount. it's on page five, um, to the process of inculturation. And it's basically applying morals to the actions that we make. And to me, that speaks to a sense of cosmology that humans adopt. Uh, And later on that page, it goes, or the next page, it goes on to say that, like Kim said, humans are held to these rules that allow us to be human. But then um, a human can often give in to instinct, let's call it, because that's how I kind of... Humans, if they give in to instinct, which is usually not morally, you know, to do what they instinctually want to do, it makes them animalistic. They, They regress into an animal kind of instinctual action. But if they're a human child, that is acceptable because they haven't undergone inculturalization yet. They haven't been given the morals that they should follow. Um, And that brings it through to the example that was highlighted in the lecture where if a human takes action, it's intentional, for example to, to create shelter it's intentional and not just a biological imperative that they're following or or uh, an instinct but if a bird goes out and gathers sticks to build a nest it's doing that through instinct and not intention and I think there's like the argument's pretty clear well the intention is to have a place to have eggs. you know like it, it's a back and forth there and I think that's what the book is really t- trying to point out to us is that dualism of ontologies and the dominant ontology within anthropology being that of naturalism and that dualism, nature versus culture or humans.
2: Yeah, I think I think what we're speaking to at the moment is this, you can see how we're sort of going to the exceptions and then back again and there's sort of this, inability to kind of sit within either sphere I think really what this discussion is with that nature culture you can see how we from here to here there's all these exceptions. so we'll bring come back there in a moment but Alyssa um
5: yeah just to speak on that point of primates that you recently or just like briefly mentioned um there's a documentary that I watched recently called Project Nim and it's all about this um, chimpanzee that in the 70s was taken from a shelter and then raised um, to see if it could create language and if it could you know speak to its educators and that kind of thing and they developed a sign language with Nim that was really effectively used um, but it was interesting to see that kind of that it was almost like a a reductive a reductivism it was that 's the word that I've said briefly, but um and I think that happens a lot with animals, like with dogs, you know we see we see traits that we we think are similar, like we show that that similarity, but then in other instances, oh, you know they're just a dog, and with Project NIM, there was um, a lot of instances where it was like that, like NIM would exhibit sign language, and like definitely in its infant phase was um like weaning off this woman and like a lot of very human behaviors. But then when Nim started getting uh, his aggressive um, chimpanzee behaviors, um, it got really difficult. And then he was, you know, just dumped back in the shelter. And what was really interesting to me was over over Nim's lifetime, um, he ended up getting uh, bought by this couple that had a horse sanctuary. And he was put in this massive, like, palatial cage, really. But because he was the only chimpanzee there, he got depressed and he was lonely. And eventually the um, the woman that reared Nim ended up coming to see Nim. And the owner of the horse shelter speaks irreverently about this, being like, when she came, I could see in Nim's eyes. He recognised her, and this is 20 years later, if not more. He recognised her. And he had this jaded look in his eye going, now you come. Like after all of this stuff has happened to me, he also spent a a lot of time in um, an animal testing lab. and Yeah, like just that recognition after all this time being like, now you come. And she ended up going into the cage and he threw her around a bit. He could have killed her and he didn't, but he threw her around to be like, don't come back, you know, like don't come back now. And that's amazing. And also, I guess, shows, how much we underestimate how animals can connect you know and anyway I just thought that was a really interesting example.
2: Such an interesting example I hadn't heard of that and that's that's yeah you can, sometimes you hear like oh you know you taught this animal uh, sign language or not but that kind of whole arc that's just so um, interesting and I think what you've highlighted there, Lisa, kind of speaks to a lot of what we 've been talking about is like oh, yeah, there's a there's a temptation to see the traits that most resemble what we 're capable of, and then but sort of half heartedly assign this sort of like well you're a little bit more than an animal, but then in the instance where maybe the animal instincts do not come out is to then like well straight away, you know, you're over there, you know, and you can only ever sort of just be a little bit more. So there's this this idea of deficiency and like we're pointing out, there's all these instances of communication. If that's the thing that you want to latch onto and say, well, we have, well, you know, what do you want to talk, what do you want to call communication? And, and, and does that really hold over? And I think, Callum, your point on the kind of ableist. Point is really something that I found came out within God's reading because if you want to talk about, uh, you know, speech or this or that or mo- da-da, well, does that hold over, over to all of homo sapiens? You know, because a whole lot of people are going to drop out of that category if you're really going to commit to it. And then the question is, you know, why do you want to commit to this? Uh, I think that's what we're going back and forth, and the Kim sort of pointed out um, how intentionality keeps coming out of this as well. Um, and so I think what's at, at stake here—we've talked about that dualism—that's what's happening here. You, you're stuck in putting it in either or, moving it from one category to the other to the other. Um, Something that I thought might be kind of uh, just fun, maybe just to come back a little bit, and I think might speak to what we 've been talking about here, maybe just orient her a little bit more, is um, I, I suppose you call it a game maybe. Um, I was inspired by uh, some trends on social media a little while ago. I saw like people were doing these kind of comparative things where they're like what 's classy if you 're rich or bogan if you 're poor and people would be like things like day drinking. Um, taking money from the government, and speaking two languages, like if you're an immigrant. And I thought, I mean, that's really funny. But I sort of thought, let's, let's bring this over and go to the lecture. What culture, if a human does it, but nature, if an animal does it? And I wonder if we can maybe think of some examples to kind of throw around.
0: Yeah, that's a good one, Kim.
2: I think uh, that's, I, I like that that's a bit more general. I think that's something that I sort of hinted towards at the lecture. You know, if you have gone build a little dwelling, if I went and build a dwelling, well, that's culture. And, you know, maybe it's it's even architecture. But if an animal goes and does it, well, that's just sort of like, you know, innate kind of instinct, right? Callum?
0: Yeah, I was thinking... Um... Destruction, which is kind of heavy,
1: to, uh, it's kind of really deep in my head to like think how I came up with that, but we are destructive in our culture, um, our, our mastery of nature, but if an animal is destructive of something, that could be another animal. Um, it's just their instinct to do so, but the same could be said. Is it our
2: instinct to be destructive? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it works. I think <clears throat> I think destruction can be quite creative, um, and it can be effective as well. Uh, uh, effective with an A, because I thought about you know that when the Taliban moved through, they destroyed some of those really sacred sites, which I think was a kind of form of another form of terrorism. That's it's culture, probably wouldn't carry that over so much to animals, I don't know. Amy?
3: Um, I was thinking about um, travelling to different feeding grounds, the way that animals will go to different feeding grounds and, and will go out to different restaurants and go, to, go to, I'm not sure if it works, but that's, that's from my moment.
2: <laughs> that totally works and that as uh, articulated what Claire said there as well. Um, Uh, which is, and I sort of thought, you know, migration as well. You know, yeah, you're right, like going out, moving somewhere, migrating often has particular patterns to it that, uh, you know, um, yeah, and moving. Uh, If it's cold, you might go on a holiday somewhere. And so when birds do it, it's like, oh, they're just, they have this little crystal in their brain that's sort of like a compass and they, like, it's like, wow. Uh, Gathering in groups, Yeah like that like team exercises right singing. yeah yeah that's a great one i that that's come up again as well in the other seminars singing and dancing um and because i think as some people were saying that a lot of the songs i mean it's easy to kind of just kind of put them it's a form of communication or they, do, you know, it's some sort of function behind it. There's instances that's like sort of recreational. And someone told me, something, said something about it, like the Bird of Paradise, I think, has a kind of repertoire of dances that it uses in particular situations. Now, you know, because you could say, oh, well, they're just dancing for mating or whatever. It's like, well, no, they have a, a suite of dances that they use. And so, mm, but when we go and dance... Um, that's kind of culture, or is it? Um, I I can't help but um I someone brought up uh, oh Amy yeah
3: oh so it's just got it with the birds of paradise too also that the male will start dancing and young males will come along and watch and learn from their dances too so there's this whole like little you know culture nature thing of coming and observing and taking notes and 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 learning and adding that to my repertoire um it's fascinating
2: yeah that really is so fascinating and i totally forgot about that element because someone brought it up and i was like they got backup dancers it's like and who thought k-pop had the kind of monopoly on huge big dance routines and you know you've got the bird of paradise and um yeah some interesting ones and someone else brought an example of the the bird who creates these really elaborate nests with particular colors and design and um I showed a, a video. We had a look at a video, and the other one I, I don't. We might just encourage you to look at that yourself. And when I was watching that video, because it's it not the best one, it was when I found Ad Hoc, this American, and he's like, oh, you know, and for the mat, it's for the male da, 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 narrating it. And I, was, I recalled, there was that video going around on YouTube of David Attenbright narrating like a night out of like people in London or something. And I thought, I thought, here he is, this lab, elaborate nest by this boy bird, and he wants to treat it, you know, and it's just because of the mate. I was like, you could do that. Like, David Adler, here's the male, and he's they drink this intoxicating liquor. He does this dance to impress the female. I was like, why, you know, you could do that here. Like, why do you have to do it, you know? And so that was an instance
4: of, of that kind of little game that we're playing as well do you think that david Attenborough does that with his mates when he's out at the pub
2: (laughs) i feel like (laughs) that would be amazing if he did people would be doing it (laughs) and um man there's this like app called cameo where you can like pay celebrities if i you would pay so much to get him to do that for like a gift or something wouldn't you Mm -hmm.
4: yeah for him to give a commentary of like your 40th birthday party or something yeah yeah amazing it would be great um
2: Nevertheless, I think uh, I think what comes out of that kind of exercise and I think what we've all spoken on here is this idea of intentionality, right, that really comes through. And that kind of almost seems to be the linchpin for a lot of this, that on what's on the culture side, there's a sense of intentionality, forethought, planning, kind of consciousness, and then whatever animals do it's something automatic and innate and just sort of like mechanistic we have we did give it a couple of examples i think amy you were talking about your dog um but i think it might be just worth revisiting it again and just to see how we feel about i think it's easy to go yeah we do i do think there's intentionality but maybe could we dive a bit deeper find some examples or or maybe You know, what do we sort of mean by intentionality? I want to just throw that open to people.
3: I think it's like pre-planned thought. There's a sense of um, a, a, a concept of the future that if then... You know, the, the whales and the bubble bubble netting is an if then. The the dolphins, the river dolphins and the way they fish on their sides in a group is an if then, like honey and the way she'll can make book bark. If I get that spark, then I'll get the treat. It's it's not just the um Pavlov's dog type of reaction. It's a concept of future planning. That was
2: great. That was really I really like that. That was quite neat and I think kinda of hit the nail on the head a little bit. How do other people feel about that? Yeah, Alyssa?
5: Yeah, to add on to what Amy said, I think also resourcefulness as well takes uh, you know, forethought and I look into the future, what is a good area to set up the shop. Like say with birds, there's uh some birds that have nested in the my front porch like in a in a bit where there's a wood slab that's a bit loose and to see that and be like hey that's already a kind of a shelter it's going to protect me from all the elements and my my babies and stuff sick like to get the tree over there I'm gonna set up shop in here um I've also seen birds um collect people's hair and make and make um nests out of that but put it in quite like subtle places but already using shelters that are in place to do that. Like once I was out camping and um I was I was chatting to this person and they're like, hey, come check this out. They'd been there for a couple of weeks and um this little bird, this little wren, had made a tiny, tiny nest out of their hair, um, in the corner of their um gazebo. And it's like you know there's going to be a bit of forethought that goes into that i thought that was pretty cool
2: yeah i love that and and i think that what you're saying what i think you're saying sort of with the resourcefulness is also there's like people might just say well they're doing the kind of you know the most efficient resourceful you know best thing and it's sort of like look how could you ever know that What boundary are you making to say that that was the best spot and they worked it out, made all these calculations? And I think what you're sort of saying, you know, there's lots of different options here. There's a gazebo, you know, hair. I'm sure there's other things, but that's what they've chosen in that instance. It works very well, but that's not to say they've kind of sat down and used their instinct to find, you know, the best, driest. There's a sense of, yeah, intention, thought that goes behind how those things just in the same way that we want the best for our children, we want the best for that, you might have to make compromises, you're not gonna like be in this, we're just, we're making these kind of choices and assessments as we go along. I think that's a really good example. Mm.
5: And also if it was just instinctual, then wouldn't you think that it would take an evolutionarily long time for them to evolve outside of just doing it in a tree? Because that's what they've known before all of this human industry came in. Instead, they're like, oh, you know, the tree's okay, but all these elements are affecting it. These shelters seem pretty sturdy. Give that a go. It'll be a bit better. Like, if we're talking in terms of evolution, that would take a hell of a long time to, you know, do that if that was just instinctual.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah. That's a big jump there,
0: isn't there? I like that. Callum? Sorry yeah um it i kind of agree
1: with what amy was saying is that it is like
0: uh seeing sorry i lost that it. Uh, it is
1: conceptualizing something and expecting an outcome and that's kind of what intentionality lends itself to is that there must be some kind of thought that goes into conceptualizing that if I do this then this will happen. So I think conceptualization is part of being intentional. Interest I just want to kind of think about something Alyssa said about like if the adaptation of if nest building is purely instinctual, then it would have taken them forever to remove themselves from nests and use uh, or, or trees and use like human construction, human shelter. It's interesting because we're making the assumption that they see shelter in the form of a tree and are using our conception of what a tree is versus perhaps they only see trees or these spaces as shelterable. They don't understand the concept of well this is a corner of a gazebo they're looking at other factors maybe they can conceptualize that it is solid and doesn't move it doesn't matter that it's in the form of a tree or a gazebo but it there's less wind it doesn't move there's there's shelter it like i kind of think it's interesting to to realize that I'm not arguing that it is phony and sexual. I don't think that at all. But perhaps what we regard their conceptualization of shelter or a tree doesn't cross, is, is in the same sense that we conceptualize a tree in and in a
0: building. It, it's all about perspective in that sense, if that makes sense at all.
2: <laughs> yeah, do you want to respond to this
5: Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that I may have not been super clear about that, but I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm saying in the sense that at least, yes, the tree would have been used as shelter, and maybe their conception of that would look different to the way we look at a tree, but in the way that the tree moves and wind still blows through it, for them to see that solid structure and then go, wait a minute, there's less wind over there, still them using that resourcefulness. And yeah, they probably, I mean, who knows what their worldview looks like. Like um, bees have ultraviolet vision. So it could be some hectic fractal business going on there, but like, we don't know. But I guess the fact that they can sometimes like point out better solutions to that, that old, sentiment of, you know, what a bird does, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm explaining it very well, but, yeah.
2: Yeah. I'll just speak on that and I'll come to, you both held your hand up for a while, but I think you could, you could almost, it's probably more helpful, you could think about, they have a conception of a nest and that's what, that's what they're going to be carrying out and I would say that probably more often than not with particular birds it's been trees until humans start having built structures. So I, doubt, I, I suspect they're making a calculation on the ability to bring into existence a nest and it has these parameters and it will, it's traditionally been this object, but I can adapt it to this object, but I have to, they have to know the kind of semi-sort of dimensions. Is that going to uphold? Is that going to, you're not just going to do it willy-nilly, are you? You're not just going to give it a shot. You're going to, to have a surety and I think
4: that's important in that. Kim? Um, I was just going to speak to like the idea of animals hunting for food and so how people would say that that's an instinct and uh, that they instinctively know where to go to get food. But if we have a look at the idea of climate change and the climate crisis on their food, they're still able to then adapt, aren't they, and find food and pre-plan for it. It's not like they're, you know, a bear out in the wild is sitting around it with their kids and going, oh, God, I haven't figured out what I'm going to cook for dinner tonight they have to pre-plan that and go out and do it whereas we've sort of gone the other way where with all of our modern conveniences we've become lazy to that so does that make them like their ability to pre-plan and know that they need to get food and that it's winter and the salmon won't be running or they have to plan for that does that make them more human than us now because we don't do that?
0: I think that's a great point,
2: and I think that's a point that uh, Ingo does make, because when he starts talking about communication and, and whatnot, and he talks about where you want to start and finish with that, he says, well, even if people have sort of, if you have emphasized speech, what you'll find is that they're deficient in a lot of the other forms of communication that animals engage in. So that, like you say, when, when you become a sedentary population, well, how good are you at arousing food from your environment? Pretty bad. I include myself in that. So why do you want to make, you just, you're just picking things up, really, aren't you? Just to be like, well, no. And I think that's what ingold has been really skillful to point out there.
4: It's like a, a very, and he, he made the point about sort of this arrogant notion of the West you know, that it's anthropocentric and ethnocentric, I think were the words that used to to say that, first of all, we put humans at the centre and say that you've got to live up to all of our standards, but then we put Western humans at the centre of that, whereas I don't think people in other cultures would be even having this conversation because they would be like, they're all living things, they all know their place, they've got intimate knowledge of them, whereas it's us who are so removed from that now that we want to, Try and figure out what
2: they are. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Claire. You've been waiting there patiently. Thank
5: you. Thank you. Um, yeah, when Alyssa said about how the birds use the hair and whatnot for their nest, it really got me thinking about like how us as humans use other animals as well, like horses for transport or sheep
3: for wool and whatnot.
5: So, um, yeah, they we pretty much just use our environments with intention for survival um and then I was thinking like I've definitely anthropomorphized my dog like there's no way he'd be able to survive in the wild he's a little shih tzu and we've really customised accustomed for him like he's got his own couch that matches our couches and everything and yeah there's no way he would be able to
0: survive
2: that's what I was thinking I think that's an interesting it's a good point and I think Towards the end of the paper, Ingold makes a brings this up, and in 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 what I get a sense of, like, well, here's implications of what we're the problem we're talking about. You know, the way that we treat animals as utility, and the kind of, you know, that this could this was almost akin to slavery if you want to extend that. And I think Claire, what. what I think you're speaking to there. I think what aroused in here as well, what I was thinking about, you know, you guys might be familiar with James Scott. He wrote Seeing Like a State. And in his latest book, Against the Grain, he makes this case, well, you want to start delineating these moments where humans became more settled and states built and whatever. And he talks about these moments of domestication. You know, when you domesticate animals, that means you have animals to hunt and protect and da-da. And he's like, but... What is also happening is animals are domesticating you, because when you start to have animals doing that, you then start to settle down and start behaving like that. In the same way, when you domesticate fire, it's domesticating you. Your social patterns start to change, and I think that uh, I think that's something that you, that your comment aroused in for me there, Claire, because in the paper as well, someone. I don't think it's in gold, he's referring to someone else, start making these delineations. Well, we have this genealogy of human beings that go all the way back. And that's. It. And he's like, yeah, and so there's just the domestic dog. He f- follows that genealogy right alongside as he as he starts to get enculturated and whatnot. So there's these kind of moments of kind of, you can't have this exceptionality that just is attached to the human being, um, I think is the point to be made there. But something I just thought, I think it's important to maybe just come back to uh, uh, on our sort of discussion about intentionality. And I think we can kind of say, well, we think that that can be extended to animals. Ingold on that says he doesn't, what I would say, he, he inverts the problem again. In is this kind of a philosophical, I think, pre, sub, a predisposition of his because he's saying, okay, you, 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 we can say that we can give intentionality to animals, but you know, you us humans, we still prize this intentionality. This is what you know sets us apart. And then he says, and I, I think Kim, you uh, spoke on this a lot earlier, uh, a bit earlier, about, well, let's think about this differently. Couldn't we say that humans are these unintentional creatures that we move through the world unintentionally and that thoughts and intentions are really just a byproduct of this kind of movement. I think this is a really interesting point and I think it's important. I just want to, you know, how, how do we understand that? That's, I think I would say that's quite a, a kind of radical shift. What do you think he sort of means by that? How can we kind of understand this? Kind of shift to an unintentional being who has thoughts as a byproduct uh, that's across um, pages nine, I believe
0: um I was just thinking in in ways that um, animals are adaptive towards us. Cats are a good example of this. Cats naturally don't meow. So when a cat meows, as it was pointed out to me just recently, it has learnt that we respond to a baby's cry. So it models its sounds like a child or a baby crying so that we will take notice of it. So it has learnt to manipulate us to serve its needs.
2: I think that's a good example of, yeah, this kind of potential to learn and that kind of intentionality, right, that we can assign to to animals. But I think, you know, to, in order to kind of really truthfully give credence to this, I think Ingold's really intent to be like, you have to rethink your privileging of human intention to really take it seriously in other animals. And I've got an example that maybe I could offer up to, to how I've come to understand this train of thought, if, if you'd like, if, we'll see if we, I'll offer it up. I think what he's sort of saying here, and the way I've sort of thought about it, is let's say you know, you're you going on a journey or um, you're just sort of in the morning waking up and you know, getting your day ready. You would do most of that, or let's say a journey I think that you have to have a little bit of intention that you set out on a journey or you're getting ready in the morning. You're not really thinking about it. You're not just like you might just be going about doing things or on a journey. I'm not thinking I'm walking, put this foot forward, put this foot forward. This is a kind of movement, an unintentional movement. You're just being an unintentional being in the world. If something then interrupts you on this journey you bump into someone, you have an accident, something happens, that elicits your thoughts and your intentions and you have to respond to that. So in a sense, you are an unintentional, you're moving through the world unintentionally and therefore your thoughts are a byproduct of what's coming into that. And I think that that's what Ingold is getting at here to say well we do a lot of things that are unintentional and then there's things that happen and thoughts are then a byproduct as we deal with these things as they come so therefore you're not this intentional being with this amazing level of consciousness you're you're an unintentional being moving through the world who has these intentional thoughts as a sort of by-product of that process. And likewise, you could almost think of some instances of, of animals doing that also. Helen? To
0: say that
1: we're unintentional, though, speaks to the fact that we do have intention. So, because it can't exist without the other, unless, of course, we're not talking in that sense of dualism. But I think... It's kind of interesting. You've got to drill down into intent, like human intention being the intention of, to use your example, to reach that place. That's our intention where I feel like the understanding is an animal would not reach that place.
0: To reach that place is not the intention. Um, And that's where the divide is, but that
1: comes back to um, someone saying, you know, like when we travel, I think it was um, Amy that said that, when we travel, that's human, but when it's migration, it's migration when an animal does it. Um, It's kind of really hard to explain what I'm trying to get at here, but intention and unintention, what drives us first, what comes first? Is it the intention to reach that place which causes unintentional things to happen, or is it our unintention that highlights the intention of what we're trying to do if in a back-and-forth way? And I think your example was to say that
0: we're unintentionally moving through the world. While still having the intention to reach
1: a place and I kind of find but, that interesting but the
2: point that 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 there is some intention there, yeah, but you are operating with a high level of unintentionality you're not the whole time going i I'm, go- I'm going to this place I'm going to this place, put one foot in front of the other, put one foot in front of the other. do you know what I mean so you you would drive and you go into a zone don't you you're not So, and likewise, when you say an animal's going from one place to another, I think we've established that that's intention. You know, unless you want to go back into that dualism, which is what I think in God's inviting us to move out of that. If you accept that animals have intention, then going from one place to another is is not. So, and I I, I understand that then there's a question of origin, that you can... how far do you want to go back? You got born. Okay. So, you know, and so when does, when does the attention start or not? So are you an unintentional agent it that then has It was not thought?
1: my intention to get
2: born. Exactly. <laughs> you, you existed in this, you exi- <laughs> you had this unintentional existence and then you had to start thinking about how you're going to deal with that. So that's what, and the reason, and it is a bit of a like a spin your head around. I, but I, it's, I'm sort of pressing the point here um, because it's, I think it's critical in what he's saying because what he's implying here, when we think of a dualism like nature culture and we want to think past it because what we've just done is explored how this dualism is pretty inadequate because you're going from hither to thither, You're in culture, you're in nature, you're in and we, there's just all these exceptions. It doesn't quite work. And I think what, by thinking like this, in God's embarking on an exercise where he says, when you de- dethrone this kind of intentionality, you're this such the intentional agent, we are not. What happens is, when you think about the substance dualism, mind and matter, rather than having mind up here and then matters over here, what you have are two dynamic processes that are occurring at the same time interacting with one another I'm a person of matter that's unintentional moving through the world and then my mind is brought into the picture and these two things happen concurrently dynamic interacting with one another and that's where he says and draws on someone else I think it's Whittingfield is that this creative advance into novelty we're moving into the unknown as these processes interact with one another. Now that's very different to a stable dichotomy of incommensable nature and matter never to show me. And that's what I think is important about that uh, position he's taking. Melissa?
5: Um, I want you to elaborate on the last sentence that you said because that's really interesting. Um... But in saying about this unintentional behavior, from what I understand, it also has to do with how our brain functions as well. Like there's an executive processing and then there's all of those other processes. So once you've learned that behavior, it goes into executive functioning. Um, But when you are learning behaviors, it is more difficult because it's new to you. So then you have to think through them more. Is that, are you saying that when we live our lives in that automatic executive functioning zone, then that's unintentional.
2: I think so, I, I, yeah, I would say so. I think unintentional is a kind of you know you a forethought, planning, and processing. And I think that there could be an argument to be to say that there if you are going into a kind of autopilot, executive function. Is that happening on a conscious level uh, where you're sort of, uh, I don't think so. I, I would say there's probably uh, unintentionality uh, happening there in those kind of instances. But I, what you just raised, so, at least, so just quickly, is another student, I think they're doing philosophy, they were saying even at an even more micro level is, you know, this idea that um, there's this, like, delay six-millisecond delay between ideas and action. And so there's this sense of, okay, well, when does the sort of intention begin? Or, oh, no, um, some actions can happen before, and then there's a, 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 a sorry, I got it around the wrong way, and then a thought assigned to it. Okay, this is how I'm, I'm doing things. And even at that kind of like, and then someone, I think they lost me and I, I did my best to give up So i talking about quantum physics these kind of you know this like where does it go so um i think you could you could argue either way but i think the way that ingold's arguing is with an an idea towards disrupting or thinking past this kind of substance dualism and to come back if i think you wanted me to speak on the creative advance into novelty I haven't read enough of my Deleuze and Qatari, but I think it sort of speaks to this kind of ideas of intense planes of intensity and this kind of idea of uh, open planes of potentiality, open terrain, terrains of potentiality. If these processes are interacting with one another and we can't really sort of know, well, then, yeah, you're, it's how you're moving through the world is kind of, into novelty and it, it, there's a creative element to it. You can't know how these processes are gonna to interact to get you to this next stage. That's how I understood it anyway. Um, nevertheless, uh, I'm sure there's counter arguments or whatnot, but I think it's an interesting thought exercise, isn't it? If we want to try and think past this uh, substance dualism. Uh, look, uh, I think we've kind of reached time there, uh, so, it was, it was kind of good to, to, to do that. I, and I just want to maybe wrap up by just saying that on page 15, he sort of says, in God's says look, you know, in this paper, I've unpacked multiple and many layer, layered meanings. It's not a theory, but a question. And so I hope that we, we might come away feeling a, a bit unsatisfied and solve the problem, but we did what we set out to do, which was to pick some of the threads that make this problem up and interrogate them so that's good now before I leave have we got any questions, comments, queries before I don't see you again for a,
4: a week
1: mm-hmm. I, I just kind of want to um, link this kind of this paper to something that in um, cyborg anthropology this week we talked about um, the idea of cosmotechnics which is a new way of approaching how we understand technology in our culture. And I think that this is, and basically the person who brought it up is trying to make us ask questions to view them differently. And I kind of see that happening. And the person who brings up cosmotechnics actually brings up um, Descalar's uh, dualism and the dualism between nature and culture and then a philosopher, Simondon's, uh, nature and technology or culture and technology um, and I think this is doing a similar thing in that it's asking us just to think of a w- different ways of viewing it outside like Kim brought up the ethnocentric and um, western view of what makes an animal and to be more accepting of the fact that even we even though we have these dualisms, we don't know. We don't even know. And, and I think that's what he's bringing up when he's in this whole paper, because I've got the whole book, and each chapter is dedicated to a different discipline, um, and they can't agree on anything. But we mm. all somehow have made the assumption that, oh, yeah, this is right. Mm. Instead, we could turn to other ontology or cosmologies to view animals in a different way which kind of is the overarching question of the last two modules is mm. to look at these ontologies and cosmologies to, to view animal and or humans and animals in, in a different way or persons in a different way. So I mm. don't know if that's not really a question or a statement. It's just the way that I've kind of processed this paper because I was unsatisfied. I was like, what's the answer then like what, what is there a definite answer that i can be like oh that's what an animal is and it's like no um it's just just think about it which is hmm. kind of
0: frustrating but
2: i get yeah. it. <laughs> i get it since i think the paper was born out of a conference that he Ingall brought all these people together. And, yeah. And I had quite a few, I've had some seminars where people looked very dismayed and perplexed. And I, that's why I had that little caveat. And that's why I was really clear what we were doing or we were going into it. Because, and I think that's the kind of course kind of more broadly as well, asking lots and lots of questions. And I've had a few people being like, so is, is this how you define personhood? It's like. No, not yet. Uh, you know. but Anyway, but I think what a lot of what you said, Callum, will actually cover in the next week as we as we do a push past the the push past the nature culture the binary uh, opposite, uh, dualism. Uh, anything else before we wrap it up here? Okay. Uh, Sorry, I've
4: got one one. Yeah, question. sure. In the reading yeah. list, there was mm-hmm. two readings for this week that were required. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Both um, read, so the, the dog one is also required?
2: Yeah, it was it? required. But my understanding, I think we might cut, touch base with that next week. Or have I... then there was another not... week
4: six reading.
2: Was there? Hmm.
4: I mean, I'm, I'm happy to it read it. I, just, I got a bit... I When you were saying at the start of this lesson, I was like, oh, my God, I hope we're not reading the dog one, doing the dog one. Because I yeah.
2: That. My understanding is we might we'll tackle that uh, the following week let me okay. just i'm just heading into my uh heading into the content now because that's I was the have. same kim <laughs> oh good yeah <laughs> right. well i'm glad you, i'm really glad you've raised it um because i think that is how we did it when i
4: but there was him, wasn't there another week six reading as yeah, well yeah so yeah the week six
1: one is the Descola reading i'm pretty sure Human Natures by Descola is, is pinned week six.
2: Right. And no, How Dogs Dream and this one is yeah. pinned five. Yeah, no, you're right. That was – we were meant to cover that this week. I might – is it all right if we cover it next uh, – in the following week? Oh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <really young. laughs>
4: yeah. Yeah, because I – could be our break reading.
2: Yeah, is that cool? I might actually post mm-hmm. that on the cloud as well. I just thought sort it of went into autopilot. So we might – we'll cover that um, – next week and that might just give everyone a breather as well while they try and where we're doing the assessment and stuff like that. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that, that would have been okay. a bit of an oversight yet. Yeah, I'll make a post about that and we'll do that. Great. Thank you. Anything else before I leave you? I'm always accessible by email. We'll be over this break as well.
1: I just want to yeah. say I hope all you guys get out of quarantine soon because... <laughs> I get it. (laughs) It's not Mm. fun. Um, So, yeah, I hope you guys
2: get out of there. Mm. So do we. Me too. We do too. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. We'll wrap it up there. Have a good break, everybody, and I'll see you in a week or two. All right. Thanks. Bye.